Good morning, uh, and happy Mother's Day for all the mothers in here. Can we just give a round of applause for the mothers? None of us would be here if it wasn't for our mothers. We are so thankful for what motherhood is, and you know, really in the days that we live in, the waning um, appreciation for what it means to be a mother, that we as the church stand alone in speaking about that, that the value of that, the biblical reality of that, the only other job description in the scriptures besides pastor is mother. What are you supposed to do? So God highly elevates that, and we want to do so as well. Well, in light of a special Sunday, we're going to step out of John, and we're going to go to Matthew chapter 16. It doesn't have a whole lot to do directly with Mother's Day per se, but it does have something to do with my mother. My mother's always on me as a preacher. She said, be practical. Talk to people where they are. Use illustrations. Make it make sense. And so I'm thankful for that uh, in my life. And what we're going to look at is, obviously, when the Gospel of John, we've been focusing on Christ because it's all about Him. But let's look at one aspect of Christ as He relates to us, but as He relates to us corporately. The church. What is Christ's relationship to the church? How does He function in the church? What is His role with the church? Much of church life is just so ingrained in us because we're used to it that we don't even know what to examine about it. Only when we're exposed to something in the church that we've never seen before, we've never heard before, do we think critically about our own church habits or practices and the things like that. It's, it's almost like, like this. One of my friends, when he went to Fiji on a mission trip, uh, Fiji is an island nation, and he was talking to one of the natives that was there who was helping them kind of get uh, acclimated and all those kinds of things. And he noticed this guy never wore shoes all over the island, walking on broken seashells and coral pieces and all this stuff. And then he finally asked him, he's like, hey, how long did it take your feet to get used to walking on broken coral and shells and rocks and all these kinds of things? And he said that the guy looked at him so funny and couldn't even answer the question. It was like asking anybody, like, hey, when, does your, when did your lungs learn how to breathe oxygen? Like, how did you get to where you could breathe air in and out of your, your lungs? It was just never even thought about it. And a lot of times with the church, we can be the same way. We just don't even know how to explain what it is that we're doing. And when we think of Christ and the church, when we think, what is Jesus' role in the church? If somebody asked you that, it would be a little bit stunning maybe. Like the guy, who, the Fijian, who's like, what do you mean? How, how do I even answer that? How do I even think through Christ's role in the church? And how does he exercise that role in the church? Because lots of people think differently about that. What is his role in the church and what is his role with us as a collective body? I mean, does, how does he manifest and perform that role? Some churches will say, well, it's through communion only. That's it. That's how he exercises his role. But what do we say? How, how do we see Christ's role functioning in the church? We often don't think critically about a lot of things, even when they're good things. Why we do them the way that we do them, or why we think the way that we think. I mean, just think about normal things that we do. Why did you sign your kid up for Little League? Why do you eat ham at Christmas? Why do we eat turkey at Thanksgiving and at Christmas, but never else anywhere else? <laughs> What's the story behind that? Why do you, and I'm talking to you landscapers out there, mow your lawn in a box pattern. I know it's maybe more efficient, but let's mow straight lines, fellas. 
straight lines. Why do we do that? So when it comes to the church, we need to be even more intentional, right? Why are we thinking this way? Why are we functioning this way? Why do I think about Christ in this way? That's why we go through the Gospel of John. Uh, but this is what we're going to look at this morning, that the Bible is going to instruct us on Christ. And we have to begin, we begin every, with every person, you begin the Christian life uh, with the beginning of Christ, Right? You're not a Christian unless you know Christ first. He's the beginning. He's the, he's the initial. He's the genesis of all of that. And so it should be for us collectively. And if you think about, if we don't start at the beginning, then what do we have? If we're not building from the beginning, then what are we doing? What are we, are we just inventing something? And that's equivalent to my freshman year of college. I took Geology 101 at Texas A&M. It's affectionately known as Rocks for Jocks because it's, the class for the dummies. I need a science credit. Just let me get out of here. But I took that in day one. The professor's down there. He's a big seasoned professor, tenured, written all these books. And he says, uh, you know, we got to start somewhere. They kind of at the beginning. And he talks about the beginning. And he says that there was a spinning ball of dust. It exploded. We got earth. Now let's talk about metamorphosis rocks. And let's talk about igneous rocks. And then my friend, who I had met minutes before, but would go on to be one of my best friends and still is to this day, his name's Joey, he just raises his hand. In the class. There's 350 people in this class. It's like a movie theater, stadium seating, massive class, freshman level, and it's the first day. It's the only day everybody's even there. And he asks the question in front of everybody and yells it out loud. And he, he raises his hand, the guy, he's like, yes? He goes, what started the spinning ball of dust? <laughs> and the professor goes, nobody knows. Anyways, moving on. And then just... <laughs> Went on from there. Like, so we started Geology 101 with nobody knows, but here's all the stuff that we know. I mean, it's, 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 it's mind-boggling. But that's what we do with Christ sometimes in the church. We, start with Christ. we don't start with Christ, we just start with stuff. We start with, with the end instead of the beginning. So let's look at the beginning of Christ in this church, because the fact is, every true church is Christ's church, that he bought that church, he built that church, and he owns that church. So what does that mean then for us? And if he's certainly Lord over all fallen creation, then he's certainly Lord over the church. So we're going to look at five aspects of Christ. It's not an exhaustive list of Christ's relationship to the church, but we're just going to look at five real quick. That Christ is the cornerstone, the architect, the builder, the owner, and Lord of the church. We're going to look at those five descriptors of Christ and, and why we need to know them and believe them. There's the ode to my mother. Why does that matter? Don't just tell me that it is. Why does it matter? We're going to look at that when we get to the end. So we're going to start with the first one, cornerstone. So when we, hear, when we hear the word cornerstone, it's not really helpful for us as Westerners. But we sing those songs, Christ is the cornerstone. Lots of ministries and churches are named the cornerstone. But that doesn't resonate with us as much as Westerners as far as giving us a concrete understanding of what that means, it just sounds like a cool word, a Christian word, it sounds important. But what is a cornerstone? Well, it's a construction element, and it's not just another stone. Like if you're stacking stones, make a stone house, that's just not the one that happens to be in the corner. It's not, don't think of it like that. When we read verses where Christ is the cornerstone. Construction in the ancient world, the cornerstone is the principal piece of the whole building. It's unique, you would go and find it out somewhere and it would just be, this is the one, and maybe shape it a little bit, but this is where we're going to build from. And all of the house, the weight of it is in a sense on that stone in the corner. And you have to build off of it. 
So if it has a slant edge like this or it, it kind of bows out like that, then, then your house is necessarily going to be shaped in that manner. It's going to kind of come off from that. It defines the shape of the house and it carries the weight of the house. It has a load-bearing function. So when we read that Christ is the cornerstone in our Bibles, as we will here in a few minutes, think of this. It's the foundation that carries the weight and determines the shape of the entire church. That's what it means for him to be the cornerstone. So look at 1 Corinthians 3.11. This foundation idea of cornerstone says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Cornerstone and foundation in the New Testament are interchangeable concepts. We'll read some cornerstone verses in a minute. But this foundation idea is the same thing. A building term. But in the context of 1 Corinthians 3.11, what Paul's talking about there is Christians standing before God on the day of judgment and what it's going to look like. That all of our um, works, he's going to compare to physical material. So the sinful works that we do are wood, hay, and straw. The righteous deeds that we do are precious stones and precious metals, diamonds, rubies, things like that. But they're all on top of the foundation that's Christ. All on top of that rock. So when the judgment comes, it's going to consume all the stuff that's wood, hay, and straw because it just gets burned up. But whatever was truly good, truly righteous, will remain. But what really remains is the foundation. That's what we stand on, is Christ. And as the church, we all stand upon the foundation of Jesus. That's what we stand. That's what's underneath us. That's what's supporting us. It's Him. We all share Him as our common rock. This is an idea that's explained in the Apostles, 1 Peter 2, but we're going to look at Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Let me read these verses to you about the cornerstone. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. But on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, when we read this and we don't have an understanding of ancient Eastern construction policies, it looks like eh, the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. That sounds like the more important gig. And the cornerstone just sounds like one rock. But, but let me explain that to you. The cornerstone is everything. That's, that's the slab. Think of it in our construction terms in the West. That's the slab. Christ is the slab. The apostles and the prophets are the first layer of bricks on the slab. So a cornerstone would be stuck in a prominent position that can't move, and then the apostles and the prophets are the first layer of stones that come around and form the perimeter of the house. And that makes sense, right? Because we, they came before us, and they're not better than us. But they were first. They were before us. And so we get to just stack on top of them as stones. We'll talk about our role as bricks or stones later on. But the, the passage is saying that Christ being the cornerstone, all of our weight, all of our meaning, all of our identity lays on him. If there is no Jesus, there is no church. It's not as if you could just pull out that cornerstone and replace it with any other stone, any other rock, any other, any other stack of rocks. It's got to be Christ. He's the cornerstone. Without him, the building collapses. The cornerstone is shaped differently and uniquely irreplaceable to the entire structure. 
So if you move the cornerstone, the building doesn't even make sense anymore. Because rocks are not, they're not, bricks are not made in a kiln in this kind of construction where they're all the exact same size and same shape, same density, all those things. If you move that cornerstone, none of the other rocks even make sense because they're stacked at the angle that they're stacked because you started with the cornerstone. So Christ is irreplaceable in the church. He's everything that, it, that we are. And if he moves, then they just, the, the whole structure just falls down. If he goes... The whole church goes. We're, our only hope is in him, the cornerstone. That's why those songs are so meaningful, right? Because if, if he's gone, it's not like, ah, well, we'll find another way. We'll, we'll hack at a different angle. There's nothing there. You just crumble and you just fall without him. So we look at Christ as our cornerstone, as the foundation, and then this whole idea in the ancient construction world of, of that being a rock. Now we've seen sung many songs about Christ being the rock, right? The rock of ages, cleft for me, and that he is the rock upon. Upon this rock I will build my church in, in Matthew chapter 16. But this rock gives life to the people of God. Let me show you another connection in this cornerstone element. There's things that are discreet in the scriptures that unless somebody points it out, maybe you didn't see it before, maybe you hadn't noticed it before that's part of what we should be doing every sunday is man i never had seen that before and i love it when those kinds of things show continuity in the bible that it's not old testament new testament it's not uh 1.0 2.0 like we tried it one way it didn't really work and let's just reboot it and try it again make it shorter so it's not as long let's just do that no it's continuity the whole bible is one message let me show you an example that ties in with Christ is the cornerstone, the rock that gives life to us, not only as our foundation, but as our life, as the rock. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and 4. The apostle says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Do you catch what he's talking about? That after Israel's redeemed out of Egypt, they're in the cloud, right? The pillar of cloud that's leading the people through the wilderness. They're baptized through Moses, meaning they, you know, they go through the Red Sea, that passing through the waters. He's talking about Israel coming out of Egypt. But then he says this, they ate the same spiritual food. We've seen that already, right? In John 6, Jesus says, I am the manna that came down from heaven. The same spiritual drink. What does Jesus say in John 4? I am the living waters. But then look at this. For they drank from the same spiritual rock that followed them. And here it is. And the rock was Christ. What rock are they talking about? What rock is Paul talking about? Exodus 17, 1-7. They're barely out of Egypt and they complain. And what does God say to Moses. Because we're going to die of thirst out here. In Egypt, we had the Nile River, and it was awesome. We had water all the time. And, and Moses is like, God, what do I do? People are complaining. He says, go to that rock over there. Hit it with your stick, and water will come out. Go strike the rock. Water comes out. They complain again. Numbers 20, 2 through 13, right? And then what does God say? Go speak to the rock. Living water will come out. Paul says Christ was that rock. But something happens. The first time, you're supposed to strike the rock. The second time, 
You're just supposed to speak the rock. What did Moses do the second time? He struck the rock, right? He hit it with the staff. God still let water come out, but what happened to Moses? That's it. You don't get to enter the promised land. That's a sin. Your sin of striking the rock. And if the rock is Jesus, according to Paul, then the pattern should make an impression upon us. The rock, Jesus, is stricken once to bring life. And then what do you do afterwards to get life from the rock? You speak. You call out. Save me. So we see the imagery there of Christ as the rock of giving of life, this foreshadowing of our glorious gospel. He doesn't need to be stricken again. He doesn't need, it would be an insult and it's a sin before God to say he needs to be crucified again. It happens one time. And then after that, all you do is call out to the rock and you get living waters that sustain your life. So that's the foundation, the cornerstone of Christ, that he's, he supports and carries the weight of all that we are, and he gives life to us in the church. The second moniker of Christ is the architect of the church. And so we don't get to design the church. Jesus designed the church, right? It makes sense. He authored it. He founds it. And continuing with this construction theme, this makes Jesus the architect, the designer of the church. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 would let us know that. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The words to key in on here are founder and author, or founder and perfecter. The word founder has been traditionally translated as author in Bible translations, not in the ESV, but in others. It's Greek word archegos. It means author, founder. Um, it, it, sometimes it means prince, so Jesus being the prince of peace. And an author, what does an author do? He develops the story of the book, right? He creates the characters who, do, who does what he wants them to do. And he writes it towards an end that he wants to come about. So he's the architect, he's the constructor, the designer of the entire story. Founders, what do they do? They design and start organizations that came from their minds, the concept they had all on their own. So Jesus, as the architect, the founder, the author of the church, is therefore its chief and solo designer. He's designed and created the whole church. Whatever he says the church is, that's what it is. And we, we are thankful for that. Isn't it? Just think about this. Isn't it wonderful that he's the designer of the church? What if you were told, hey, go and create a local gathering of the people of God and make sure that it pleases God and just create it all on your own from scratch? What kind of panic would that be? I mean, we panic when we're like, hey, just in my house sometimes it's, hey, where do you want to go for lunch? I, I don't know. Wait, wait, wait. I, I can't figure it out. I, there's too many options. And we have options to start from. What if we just get a blank slate? Design the people of God and how they function. <laughs> Thank the Lord he took that weight off of us. And it's not on us. He had a son. You design. You architect. You author this church. You write it all up. 
You know, Jesus as the architect, we're just mere building material. He's the, he's the architect. He's the designer. We don't get to offer edits to the architect and praise the Lord we don't because we would just mess it up. Bricks don't tell blueprints what to do. Bricks wait for the, the architect to say, you go here. And then the builder puts you there. And consequently, Christ is also the builder of the church. That's the third one. In Matthew 16, 18, when he's talking, Jesus is talking to the disciples. Well, let me just go back and read 13 and following of Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, what do people, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus said, I will build my church. I'm the builder. Who? Jesus. So not only is he the foundation slab, the cornerstone, not only is he the architect, he's also the contractor of the church. His construction theme is deep. He's the only one physically doing the work of building the church. He's the one putting brick upon brick, stone upon stone, where he wants them. Aren't you glad that it's not you building the church? I'm sure glad it's not me as the pastor. Hey, build this church. <laughs> Thank you for making it not my job, Lord, that it's you. You've taken that upon yourself to build your church. And this fits with our theology of conversion, right? Like what, how we understand people coming to Christ and being saved. Doesn't it make sense? Everyone who's truly saved from the eternal hell is saved individually, right? There's no family plans. that You kind of get, just get lumped in and you just get to keep your insurance because you're in still in the house. None of that. There's no like, well, everybody in this country will go ahead and just, you guys are all going in. He doesn't do it like that. It's individual. We preach to individuals to repent and trust in Christ so that they might be saved from their sins. So what does that then mean? If we're the bricks, if we're the stones, Christ is the builder, that means he handles personally each brick. And then he takes that brick and he puts it exactly where he wants in the house. That is the church. What kind of special attention are we getting? He picks every brick that he wants he places every brick where he wants it on the building because he's the builder. He didn't just say, hey, go and figure it out. Or, hey, apostles and prophets and those who come after you, you guys pick the bricks and you guys determine where they go. That would be a tragedy of a nightmare to leave that in the hands of mere men. But Christ does it as the builder. So in, in 1 Peter and Ephesians 2, we saw that Christians in this whole structure idea that we're just stones, we're bricks, we're building material, we're the two-by-fours, the plywood. We're just objects placed in the position of the liking and the planning of the architect by the hands of the builder, both of whom are Jesus. He's both, and neither of whom is us. And aren't we so glad? Doesn't this just 
This concept right here, these three construction concepts, cornerstone, architect, and builder, doesn't that just kill dead-on-arrival church growth methodologies? It just kills them. They, they can't live. We don't think about this very often, but if we did, it would change the way we would speak about church growth. Hey, pastor, how are we going to grow the church? Pastor, what are you going to be doing to grow the church? We aren't going to do anything to build the church. I am not going to do anything to build the church because Jesus says, that's my job. I will build my church. And I, I don't know about you, but I'm not a fan of taking Jesus's jobs away from him and talking to myself. What kind of hubris and arrogance would that be? No, I got this, Jesus. Take a break. I'll build this one. You can build those other jokers over there. <laughs> what? No, we just, we let Christ do it. What, what are bricks going to do to build the house? Nothing. We do nothing. Bricks are impotent to build a house, but they can function in their place. They can not crumble. They can stand against the heat of the sun. But bricks don't try to take over construction from the builder. Certainly not. So we got to ask ourselves this. Can a church be doing everything right, everything biblical, and not be growing numerically? Let's ask the reverse. Can a church or a group be growing numerically, but yet be doing everything wrong and unbiblically? Well, of course. We've seen that. Everywhere, all the time. It's easy to gather a crowd, but it takes something supernatural to grow a church. Because Christ is the builder. Anybody with magic tricks, motorcycle flips, and money clips can make a church grow big, numerically. But not spiritually, not authentically. Only Christ can grow a church. Bricks do what bricks do. We maintain our structural integrity by pouring ourselves into the Word. We resist crumbling. In essence, what do bricks do? We just remain faithful to our calling. Christ says, you are a brick. I put you here. Remain. Continue. Abide. Faithful is the mark of a church. Not booming, not bursting. Faithfulness is the measuring stick of the church, not numbers. Otherwise, we have to say that every cult leader and prosperity preacher is a fantastic instrument in the hands of Christ. They have a lot of people. They're all there. But that can't be what builds a church. Christ builds a church. We are just faithful. That's all we are, faithful with his gospel commands to share the gospel with the lost, to teach the gospel to the saved. And how many people come and join us? That's entirely in the hands of the builder or the architect because he already predetermined the size and shape and structure of your house. You just remain faithful with where he's put you. So not only is he the foundation, the cornerstone, the architect, the builder, he's also the owner. Christ is not building a church that he designed and that he's the foundation for to give to somebody else or to be somebody else's. No, he's the owner. What did he say in Matthew 16, 18? I will build my church, not the church, not a church, not his church or her church. I will build my church. He owns it. He claims sole possession of the church. And any true church is Christ's church. But not just true churches, but false churches and pagan churches and everything in the entire world. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He owns everything. But there is a unique ownership that Christ has for his church. 
He distinguishes between his church and not his church, his sheep and not his sheep. When he's talking to the Pharisees and rebuking them sharply in John 10, 26 and 27, he says, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. He uniquely owns those who have placed their trust in him, his church. Now there's three designations scripturally, or at least three, of Christ's ownership. Jesus is purifying his church to be his prized possession. As far as the ownership goes, Titus 2.14, Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people. That's what the church is, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. He did the work of redeeming us as sinners, the work of the cross, to purify and possess us. We are a specific people. We are his people. It's his church. Second designation of ownership is, is what are we called 120 times in the New Testament? Slaves. The Greek word is doulos. You call it bond servants. Sometimes it's translated servants or slaves. At the end of the day, what, you, what you're looking at is somebody has a master, and a master connotes ownership. Romans 6.22 says as much. But now that you have been set free from sin, so you're freed from that tyrannical, wicked, oppressive master, and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. We've been bought out of oppressive, overbearing, uh, condemning slavery to sin and introduced to a glorious slavery to God. An ownership of God. And, and he bought, how did he get us? Redemption, he bought us with his blood. 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20 is the third element. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is difficult for us in our day. We have to freely admit that, that what do you mean I'm not my own? I am my own. Nobody owns me. That's, that's the initial reaction that we all have when we come across a verse like that. We've got to be careful to check ourselves. How grateful should we be as those who are sold into bondage to sin, as Romans seven fourteen says, we're sold into bondage to sin, but we've been bought out of that slavery that was killing us, beating us, oppressing us, holding us down, leading us into eternal destruction, and we're given a new master. And what does our master say? The end of Matthew 11, what about his yoke? and What about his burden? It's easy and light. And all who are weary come and you find rest with me, with this kind of master? I want to be owned by that guy. I want to be owned by that God. In Ephesians 5, if you think about just the ownership even further, one illustration that we're not going to get into is that Christ is the head of the church. And we're the body, right? We say we're the body. What body acts independently from the head? What happens if the body doesn't respond to what the brain is saying? What do we call that? We call it paralysis. What happens when the body is responding or is acting in ways the head hasn't said? We call that a disorder, like Tourette's or something along the lines. It's, we call that spasming. So the head, of course, I, I say my head, where my cognitive functioning is, I call this my body, right? This is mine. It belongs to this head. 
So Christ is the head of the church. Of course, he, he owns us. And, and thank the Lord that it's his ownership over us, not anything else. Because here's the lie of the culture, that true autonomy exists. The lie of the culture says that you can be all that you are, all on your own, and you can be utterly autonomous, alone, set apart to yourself, for yourself. That's a lie. Nobody is autonomous. You will be subservient to something. Just like we will worship something, we will be a slave to something. It will either be sin and self, or it will be the graciousness of Christ and the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So thank God that in the church, He owns us. And then lastly, He is Lord of the church. You know, one of the earliest Christian confessions, Christian creeds, uh, deals with Christ's lordship over us, as, over the church. And it came about in the days of the Roman empires uh, in, the, in the first and second century, it's like the 100s, 200s, and then very baby early 300s, Roman Empire's persecution of the church, which the church is largely located exclusively inside the Roman Empire. That's the world at the time. Now the Christians then, as now, they were totally content with being model citizens, right? And we, as we should. Most laws that were around don't violate our commitment to the scriptures, our commitment to Christ. It's just pay your taxes, obey the speed limit. Some of you, I'm just, well, it's a law. Uh, <laughs> I'm saying, if you slow down when you see the cop, you know, you're doing something wrong. Um, but we pay our tax. I mean, we're going to follow all the housing codes. We're going we're gonna to make sure that we, you know, function under these laws that we're under. I mean, that's what Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 tell us to do. We'll follow your civil codes and, and obey, like, we're not engage in criminal activity. That's what we'll do as Christians. We're telling you that, governments. We will obey all of these laws, even if we think that they are foolish and silly. They're not causing us to violate our faith and our and the biblical the biblical convictions we have. Then we'll do it, and we'll we'll do it joyfully because we know that we have a citizenship in another heaven. But will you say, citizen of Rome, Caesar is Lord? Say that, Caesar is Lord. See, that's what got them in trouble in the 100s and the 200s and the very early 300s. We won't say that. We won't say Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord in Greek. We will only say Jesu Curios, Jesus is Lord. We won't call Caesar that. That's what gets us in trouble with the government because we won't do that. Now, the earliest Christian confession is Jesus is Lord because the church only has one Lord and it's Jesus of Nazareth. Romans 10.9 says, but if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Entrance into the kingdom of God, entrance into the church is based on what? That confession that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of the church. He's Lord of us. No one is in the church who hasn't made this confession, meaning no one, who is, no one is a Christian who hasn't made this confession. See, lordship can just be simply broken down as authority. Who has the authority in the church? Christ does. Well, we know Jesus isn't here reigning physically, so then how does he exercise that authority in the church? Through this, the written word. That's why John calls him the heavenly word, the divine word. 
That's how he exercises his authority in the church. That's what lordship is. If Jesus is Lord of the church, that just means that he has unfettered, unencumbered, unhindered authority in the church. That's what he has. And all of that is much easier to understand when we consider that he's the foundation, the architect, the builder, and the owner. Well, of course he has all authority. Who else would have any authority in the church? Who's not the owner, the builder, the designer, or the, uh, the foundation? That, that's pretty clear. We get it. So once you do all those four, the last one just is kind of a foregone conclusion. Well, of course Jesus has all the authority in the church. Of course we hold up everything that he says and we will, we're going to do everything he says. It's not just like, oh, when we stumble across something, like, oh, man, now I know that I got to deal with that. Or we can have the perspective of like, well, I, I mean, I like these parts, but I don't, I don't really like these parts. So I'll do those, but I'm not do those. That's not how we get to behave out in society. I'll do these laws, but not these laws. And you have to just let it be. I'm giving you enough. Look, I'll, I'll do this. I'll drive, I'll drive the speed limit on the highway. But in a school zone, I'm going to be texting and driving 20 over. That's the deal. Okay? Take it or leave it. We don't get to do that. They just say, here's a ticket for a bazillion dollars. Like, that's, that's how it goes. So in Christ's church, that's the same for us, right? This is his word. He exercises authority through his word. I mean, if you think about it in, in renting a house, which of the landlord's rules do you have to obey? Some of them, a handful of them, or all of them? Unless, until you get evicted. That's when we're living it right now. Look at the evidence. We're having to obey these rules, and they're like, well, we're going to send a contractor out sometime. Maybe March timber 11th, around then, we'll send a guy out to deal with that. Well, we've got to wait, because we don't own this place. We're not the owner. Somebody else is the owner. This mysterious TYG group that we don't ever have seen or deal with. But we got to obey the rules because we don't own this. We don't have any authority to defy it. That's Christ in the church. He owns us. And his authority reigns supreme in the church. The, the word Lord, Greek word kurios, appears 665 times about in the New Testament alone. It's a big deal. And just the, the phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus our Lord, some variation of that, that's about 85 times in the 27 books of the New Testament. That's a big deal, a big concept about Christ as Lord of the church. And we hear that, and if you have no concept of the love of Christ, of his death and resurrection on our behalf, motivated only by love, then that sounds tyrannical and intimidating. But when you know how did he become Lord of the church, he died for her. That's how he became that. Then you have all of that authority, have all of that power, have all of that dominion. Because if Jesus is Lord of the church and lordship's equivalent to authority, then we as a church, we have to be concerned. We have to be. We're compelled to be concerned about how he's told us to conduct ourselves in the church. And it's not because of like, okay, you're the boss, whatever, like we are with our landlord. Now, if this landlord had been giving us money, coming by and dropping off cookies, taking our kids to school, and then, oh yeah, then he dies in our place, we'd be like, yeah, whatever you want. <laughs> we'll deal with these messed up walls and the torn up carpet. We'll deal with that. That doesn't even, we're not even concerned about that. That's not an oppressive rule to us because of what you've done for us. That's Christ in the church. That's our posture towards him with an authority. It's not a negative thing. It's a joyful thing for us to do that. And isn't that what the Great Commission says? You go to him. 
You convert them, baptize them, and then what do you do? You teach them everything Jesus suggested. No, everything he commanded. Because he's the Lord of the church. He's the owner of the church. He's the designer, the architect, the builder of the church. So it makes total sense when we lay it all out. So now, here from my dear sweet mama, why does it matter? <laughs> why does this matter that Jesus is the cornerstone, the architect, the builder, the, the uh, owner, and then the Lord of the church? Well, there's two, two ways it matters. It's corrective and it's... Uh, Suggestive is the wrong word. Maybe proactive is a better word. Corrective and proactive. It's corrective in the sense that I don't get to design the church the way I want to. And that largely affects me and the elders more than, than most folks at church. Me, the elders, and deacons. Because we're the ones who are like, wow, we want to do what we want to do. We've got a vision. We've read a book called Visioneering, and we're going to do that. We don't, we're not free to do that. I don't get to design the church in the way that I want. Jesus decides what the church looks like because... He bought it. He owns it, he designed it, and he built it. I don't have the freedom to institute my own vision. And aren't you glad? Because what if my vision is stupid? And then you have to live with it. I'm not free to do that. I'm not free to do anything outside of the will of Christ. Because I don't own this church. I didn't buy it. I didn't die for it. I didn't design it or build it. It's Christ's church. So thank the Lord. So it corrects us in that sense. And if Jesus is the foundation of this church... And that means I have to bend myself to him. If he's the cornerstone, however he's shaped, I have to fit him. I don't make the cornerstone bend and then fit me, this little pebble that he's using grace, gracefully, graciously to build this church. So all I have to do is conform to his plans. I don't offer my edits to the architect. I don't take the blueprint and go, Jesus, great rough draft, buddy. Uh, here's what I love to see happen, though, in this area over here. Let's just do that. I mean, maybe cut this out over here. I don't get to do that. I'm a brick. I'm a rock. So it corrects us in that way. But it's also proactive for us. The plan, the power, and the promise of the church is already determined. Does that relieve you? If it doesn't, may I suggest that it should relieve you? The plan the power and the promise of the church is already determined. We don't need to contract a marketing firm. We don't need a, some motivational speaker who's just unbelievable when he gets up in front of everybody. We don't need somebody with cunning entrepreneurial skills. We, we, otherwise, your church will never get off the ground. We don't need a genius. Thank goodness. I don't think, do we, we have any geniuses in here? Maybe Scott, but not the rest of us. All, we, don't, we don't have to do any of that stuff. You just follow the blueprints written by the architect, knowing that he's also going to be the one doing all the building and that he's very concerned about its success because he owns it and that he's going to make sure that he exercises his authority through an exhaustive text. Doesn't that free us up to be simple, to just follow the scriptures to not look at what all is going on out there that we could try to implement and take and turn into something that would be useful for the church. We don't have to stretch ourselves out about all that stuff. Christ is the builder, the designer, the owner. And he has, it's, his, his, it's his authority in the church. The church doesn't rest. The success, the vitality, the longevity of the church doesn't rest on any man's shoulders. Amen. 
I will build my church, Jesus said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It doesn't depend upon me, our elders, our deacons, our church members, our body, or the future generation coming up after them, whether or not we successfully raise them, which we should be concerned about that. But it's not landing on us that if we blow it with those kids, that then it's just all lost. No, Christ has everything invested in this. His blood invested in this. I've never spelled blood for the church, except when we were cutting out a few of the walls. I got one boo-boo. I'm not making a big deal about it, but yes, it was close to martyrdom. (laughs) But I've never spilled blood for the church, and Hebrews 12 says that. You're suffering, but have you come to the point of shedding blood over sins? Kind of rebuking those folks who are whining a little bit? No, but Christ has. And so it's, it's his. The burden of trying to scheme a new innovative plan for the church, that's irrelevant. There is a plan that can't be improved upon unless you're saying we can improve upon Christ's plan, which none of us would say. So this is proactive. It's encouraging. It's, it's relieving that all we have to do is be faithful because we all want a church that the gates of hell can't prevail against, right? We all want that because we, do we feel the gates a little hotter these days, a little closer to where we live now? We certainly do. So that's the kind of church that we want. So then how do we get that church? It's only the church that Jesus himself builds. And he builds what he owns. He builds what he designs. And he's also the foundation for it. And he exercises his loving, generous authority over it. That's, That's the kind of church. So we just need to be a people that strives to cooperate with that. That's all we do, cooperate with Christ as one who builds the church. So we, we, we are free to abandon the brittle wisdom of church growth gurus and workshops on how to make the new, fastest, innovative, lightning thing that'll go and that'll, everybody will come in. And I mean, if you just get a sign that looks like this, we can abandon all that stuff and just be faithful to what Christ has said in his church because it's his power, it's his baby. And an illustration that we didn't even get to is it's his bride. And what husband do you know who has no concern about the development, love, sustaining, and protection of his wife? But that's Christ in the church. So we are free in that. Let's just take this posture in our hearts. Lord, Jesus, we know that only you can build this church. And we don't want to employ worldly wisdom to accomplish a heavenly goal. Our desire is to see a church that matures into a people that can withstand the raging gates of hell. So transform our hearts and our minds to pursue you as the foundation, the architect, the builder, the owner, and the Lord of our church. And do a good work in us for your glory and our good. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for taking the burden off of us. When we look back, Lord, sometimes we see Exodus 20 through the end of the book and all of those details on the tabernacle and the priest's clothes and and, and all of that, and we just see oppressive, overbearing, and maybe legalism. But that's not what those people saw. Lord, those people saw grace that you told them down to the joists between the tent poles what they're supposed to look like, what they're supposed to be made from. They had no confusion on how to worship you. This God who had just redeemed them, saved them from certain death and slavery in Egypt. 
You brought them out and you didn't say, figure it out, learn how to please me and be my people. You told them in, in baby talk, here's exactly how I want you to make the tent size. Here's exactly how I want you to dress when you come to worship me. They saw that as grace. And Lord, we have even a greater grace now, a better covenant now, as Hebrews says. As the new covenant church, we thank you for, for taking all of that burden off of us. Lord, we so desperately want to see our church be healthy and grow. But we so desperately want to never usurp your authority in the church by assuming that we can build it or we can establish some other kind of foundation or there's a new kind of design that we could come up with or construct or that somebody else has who claims to have some new wisdom. Thank you for freeing us from all of that. Thank you for freeing us from all of that. And the burden that's on so many of us to, to want to see healthy vibrance be the reality in our church. We know that all we can do as bricks is just be faithful where you've placed us by upholding your word that functions as your authoritative voice in the church. So may we do that with great joy, with great smiles, uh, with great exuberance, knowing with what you've done. You don't own us out of sort of some totalitarian hostile takeover, which you could have done. We were rebellious creatures that you made, but you died for us and bought us back from a slavery that we chose as represented in our federal head, Adam. You gave us a new Adam that those in his lineage will never taste death. So Father, we thank you for that. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the, the Lord, architect, designer, owner, builder, and foundation of our church. And may we be that in reality and, and pull from these pages practical outworkings of that. And may our continued study of John serve us in that way as we just look at you and what you said and how you've lived and what you taught that we might be found faithful when you return. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.